Welcome to Love and Other Investments, where we talk about finances, but more importantly, how finances impact relationships. My name is John, and I'm a financial planner. And my name is Jeff, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Hi, I'm John. I'm Jeff. And welcome to the next episode of Love and Other Investments. Um, here, a financial planner and a marriage and family therapist um, kind of talk about relationships and money and, quite frankly, that space in the middle that we don't think anybody's really talking much about. Not very much. So in our episode today, we're going to talk about a word that is uh, in Jeff's realm far more than mine, uh, but we're going to talk about financial attachment, which is really attachment theory. Is that right? Did I say that right? Yeah, attachment theory. We're going to talk about attachment theory, and then we're going to see how it might apply. We're going to think together about how it might apply to dollars, to money, and our relationships. Okay, so what is it and why do I care? Great question. So there's this guy. His name's John Bowlby. And he had this idea that he wanted to understand why kids are distressed when parents leave the space that hmm. they're in. So he wanted, to, <clears throat> he wanted to do some investigating. And his idea was that, just like other mammals, perhaps children are distressed when their parents leave because they experience that as some kind of danger. You know, kids are all 100% dependent on us, Mm -hmm. right, for everything, especially when they're infants. Right. So he had this idea that their distress is a signal system that allows the parent to understand when they're being called to go give some help in the form of, know giving food or or comfort or changing a diaper or getting getting warmth or tending to them when they're sick or whatever whatever Mm -hmm. the thing is so i think that hopefully that's common sense like we kind of get that right when your kid cries you you probably yeah you probably need to go attend to whatever Mm -hmm. is going on does that make sense yeah so they he and his colleagues including a woman named uh, Mary Ainsworth did a really interesting thing to study this, which is they took one-year-old kids and they put them in what they called a strange situation. This is a lab where they had a room with some toys and stuff, and they, they were able to observe what was going on in that room. And they asked the mom in, in the original experiments to, to leave the room for about a minute not a long time Mm -hmm. and then they would watch what would happen when the mom left how the child would deal with that and then what would happen when the mom returned and as you might imagine you know the situation is strange to the child it's a novel space for them and even with toys and maybe fun things to do in there it was a little upsetting to them to have mom step out for a minute and so they would cry, mm-hmm. right? And when mom returned, as you might imagine, quite a few of them were very glad to see mom and would give her a hug, and mom would soothe them, and that would be sort of the, the process, right? There were children who reacted differently than that. And they were very, the researchers were very interested in 
these different reactions. Okay. So <clears throat> one of the reactions was that the child would be super anxious at the mom's departure and also very hard to soothe when mom returned. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they would put their arms up to be picked up and then as the second their their arms were up they would push their palms on mom's you know shoulders to say no I don't want to be held. It was a kind of like wait a minute here you know do I do I really want you to hold me? Mm -hmm. They were ambivalent about this situation, right? They thought, hmm, I don't know, maybe I'm a little angry at mom for leaving me here, right? So we're, this is all inferred, right? right. Uh, and some kids actually had a reaction where when mom left the room, they were almost indifferent. Mm -hmm. It was like they didn't really care one way or another, and when mom came back, they didn't really care. And <clears throat> those kids had this kind of um, distant kind of reaction, and so that was an unusual situation as well. And also, bo in both of these situations, the, these were not what was expected, right? If, you're, if something distressing happen, happens to you, then you're, you want your mom to, or your dad to take care of you, right? So when, when something goes wrong in that process, um, the researchers were interested in what that might be. So this is all the background, right? This is all the nerdy stuff in the background. Mm -hmm. There's a third reaction where, which, which is called disorganized, a disorganized attachment, where the child had the perception that the person returning, the parent, would be the person who would hurt them. So there was some fear mm -hmm. involved um, in, in their reaction. So, so there are these three reactions that are considered to be insecure types one secure and three insecure types okay you with me so far yeah okay so let's make this real right like so so far we're just talking about a one-year-old in a lab room right? right and what does that have to do with anything mm -hmm. so the idea here is that this system of bonding that Bowlby was pointing to is basically like a learning system. If you grow up with people who are consistently attentive to your needs, they pay attention to when you're crying and give you what you need, then as you grow and develop, if that happens in a really consistent and persistent way, you come to view the world as a safe place. You interact with people assuming that you know they will treat you nicely and mm -hmm. that the, if you have something you need they'll help you and um, on by contrast if you have one of the insecure types you have the experience that perhaps if you're upset or distressed by something maybe someone won't consistently attend to your needs and you begin to anticipate over time over years really that if there's some kind of problem that you have, that you encounter, you might not be able to count on someone to help you. Or if they do help you, they also do it in a hurtful way. Mm -hmm. So it's maybe not such a great thing to have their help. So when we expand upon that idea and sort of project into adulthood, 
right? You can begin to imagine how this might play out in, say, romantic relationships. There's some kind of correlation, probably, probably not causation, but some kind of correlation about what you learned in childhood, about whether people are reliably going to be supportive and kind and interested in you, and what happens later in life when you're going to choose a partner, let's say, or friends or whatever. So, for instance, to make this simple, maybe I marry somebody thinking this is going to be great because now I'm going to have somebody that when things are difficult is going to help me through my challenges. Right. And the other partner might say, well, this is great. Now I have somebody while I'm fixing my challenges. Yeah. Those are not the or, same thing. <clears throat> or another possibility is they say, um, yeah, I don't really want to be around somebody who's going to help me with my challenges. I don't want to share mm-hmm. my challenges. I don't want to be close to someone because they're the source of my pain. Mm-hmm. Or they're not going to be reliable in terms of giving me care or kindness. So I'm just going to shut down my expression of uh, feelings or intimacy or closeness altogether. And I could imagine that there's a million waypoints in between and all yes. of these. Yeah, originally these were thought of as sort of categories. You know, you're in the category or out, but really they're more like dimensions. Like Mm -hmm. you have a certain amount of each of them. And actually you might have a certain amount of like bond with different people in your life. Mm -hmm. So rather than thinking about it as, oh, I have a certain type, you might think, you know, do do I have a certain amount of avoidance in a relationship or do I have a certain amount of anxiety in a relationship? In other words, like... um you know, you've certainly met somebody who gets really, really anxious as an adult because they think um, their partner's going to reject them or leave. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe you have a certain amount of avoidance um, because you're thinking, I can't count on that person. And, you know, depending on the relationship, um, you might have more or less in that relationship on one on one or both of those dimensions. Has there has there ever been any studies or do you do you have any anecdotal information? Do do people who kind of we'll call it, can I call it a spectrum? Yeah, sure. Do people who fall in a certain place on that spectrum of of attachment are they typically attracted to each other? Do they typically find people like themselves or do they find people who are um, different than themselves? Do they find someone who approaches that differently is attractive or do they it's find a, that as a, a repellent great question so attachment wouldn't be the only thing that would be in play in attraction mm-hmm. so it would be one one dimension of what might make someone attractive and it is completely possible that people have different who have different uh, f- um, attachment styles would be attracted to each other mm-hmm. Um, you would you would think that people who are securely attached would also find other people who are securely attached, but that's not really always the case. Mm-hmm. So you see a mix, I think, right. in the general population. So if I try to bring this back, I would say that what you're cluing us into is the idea that when we get under stress, when we are made uncomfortable, right. we may or may not react the same way as our spouse does. Correct. Which 
hopefully is not rocket science, right? You like, like we, if of anything we say, we say that our spouses are different, right? We can't just right. anticipate that our partner thinks the same way as we do. That doesn't make sense. But we've been talking for a while that there are reasons why that is, and that those reasons are, um, that those reasons have meaning. Mm-hmm. That those um, reasons are to a certain degree discoverable. Yes, and through curiosity, thinking about those reasons, discovering those reasons, um, talking about those implications gives us a choice to maybe try something different. Right. Or at the very least, being aware what our tendency is so that if we want a different outcome, we can go, oh, I think I'm doing the thing. Yes, that's right. Even though we may not ever change the way we do it. It, you know, it, we might have some natural impulse to go in a certain direction, but if you knew that impulse was connected somewhere to a, a problem in your history, then you would say, hopefully, you would say, ah, here's that problem that keeps rearing its head. I think I want to handle it this way instead mm-hmm. of the normal way I did five years ago or whatever. I would assume that if you're, um, if you're married to somebody and you go over to their family gatherings yeah you've probably already noticed this if you if there's an issue if there if this comes up in your relationship is you watch the way that they communicate with their mom or their dad or their siblings and you walk out of there and you go wow that's not how we do things yes i mean you know the attachment attachment part of this would be one segment of Mm -hmm. how things might be different between you and your family and your partner and their family because right? many, many more things going on, mm-hmm. like just personality, right? Mm-hmm. But, but yes, that's exactly right. You would be able, if you, if you kind of had an idea of how attachment went, like what the options are and how that gets expressed in people's relationships and their behavior, you could go to, you know, your partner's family and, and observe and say, oh, I see this is happening here. Mm-hmm. And that would give you some clues about what might be going on for your partner. So let me, let me ask, because we're going to keep pushing towards money. We're, right. I'm, I'm kind of circling it right now. Right. Um, but let me say it this way. So you have this way that you relate to your family, and I think it's not always constructive and compared to me. And I think that the way that we argue sometimes is caused by this methodology or this attachment I think there's something in your past that sure. has developed this pattern. Yeah. But, but I look at you in the eye and I go, hey, dude, I'm not your mom. I'm not your dad. Why can't you treat me differently since I don't treat you like they do? Right. Why can't we just have our own relationship based on our own connection? Why do we have to deal with this? Well, I mean, it's a fantastic question. And, of course, the answer is you don't have to deal with it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean... If you're both intentional, you could make changes that would allow you both to feel secure and safe in the relationship. So it's easy to make these changes. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) But you could. You could. Okay. Why is it hard to make these changes? So if if you're doing something, if the way you relate to me under stress is causing trouble for me, then theoretically probably the inverse of that's true. Sure. I'll give you that. Um, But... Why is it so hard to change our stripes? Yeah, I mean, we're powerful learning machines. And from the moment we are born until now, we are learning 
a lot. We're taking in a lot more information than we think we are. Mm -hmm. And there's certain things that we want to automate so that we don't have to keep solving the same problem over and over and over. So once we believe that 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 situation is true, then we'll just generalize it everywhere else or, mm -hmm. or most places, right? So if I have a if I have the belief that, um, for instance, the person who's supposed to love me is also the person who harms me, I'm just going to apply that idea everywhere, right? Like, right. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating. It might not be everywhere, but in a lot of places, and especially in places where I'm anticipating some kind of close connection, like in a romantic relationship. Convincing someone that the lesson they learned early in life is not actually true is easier said than done. You would, you know, you would need to go back and think through every instance in which that lesson had been learned and relearned and relearned and relearned because we're not talking about a single instance where, you know, something went wrong in a relationship. We're talking about something going wrong consistently over time yeah so if if somebody tells you hey you know i like to believe that uh, people are mostly good and if your life experience for 25 years tells you that that is not the case yeah you're that not person just... telling you that even yeah. though you might even agree with them yeah i think that makes sense it doesn't change anything right that's right because you have so much information to the contrary right you know, one of the things that we, and we've talked about this uh, metaphor before, uh, my wife goes to the grocery store, she goes down the cereal aisle, which is you know, like the most colorful, mm -hmm. you know, chaotic aisle in the grocery store. Right. And she sees color and letters, and then she sees wheat checks. Because that's all she's looking for. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're kind of that way as we, we learn these things, we learn to tune out a lot of things. And we learn to focus in on a lot of yeah. things um, inherently, and there's no language attached to it. Our brain just, right. our little lizard brain does a great job of following through with these patterns. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, it takes work. Psychotherapy is focused on this kind of change, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you, it's the kind of change that requires effort, psychological effort mm -hmm. to try to understand the kinds of dilemmas one has experienced in their history, their impact on your present, and what you might do differently so that you don't repeat the kinds of problematic responses you've, you've always done. And this would be a similar situation, right? Like, so let's get into the finances of this because, you know, how I relate to people and how I generally believe others are, Right. how does that apply to... You know, me arguing with my spouse over resources. Well, yeah, let's. So, you and I have, on many occasions, put forward the idea that money has different meaning for different people. Mm -hmm. It's really the same idea we're just talking about now. We come to understand the meanings of money based on our experience of money growing up and in our adulthood. And so, imagine that, for instance, I grew up in a family where um, if I was distressed, I didn't get much soothing. Mm -hmm. And I um, learned that I needed to do something for myself. I needed to be independent, take care of myself. And imagine then that I thought, well, 
you know, one way for me to reduce my anxiety is to go onto Amazon and buy a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. The buying of the stuff, it serves the function, the concrete function of getting, exchanging dollars for stuff, but it, ser- it serves the psychological function in this example of soothing the feelings I don't want, mm-hmm. the anxious feelings or the insecure feelings I don't want. Right. It could be any feeling. I'm sure. just using that, right? So I effectively use it like a substance, you know, I don't well, want it. And it wouldn't necessarily even be buying things. It might even be a hobby. You know, my hobby is how I soothe myself, but my hobby sure. ain't cheap. Right. So now imagine that I'm married to someone who doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. And they see me spending a lot of money online for stuff we don't need. And they don't relate to that. Mm-hmm. And they ask, why are you buying all this stuff? Like, we don't need this stuff. Why are you buying, you know, you're, you're spending money in ways that are not helpful to our goals. Mm-hmm. And now we have a conflict, right? right. Let me but give I, you an indirect one. Yeah. Um, maybe you're in a situation where when you're under conflict, you don't want to sit down and work it out with somebody. Yeah. You've learned that avoiding the conflict is the best thing. Yes. And so um, social media has given us this great tool where we can just sit down, put our head down, and scroll through little real videos and burn an hour and a half while our partner, quote, cools down or moves on to something right, else. Right. And we solve nothing. Nothing. Now, I didn't spend a single dollar, right? Right. I didn't spend any money trying to soothe myself. Right. But I did avoid actually solving a problem sure. or addressing a problem. Sure. And may have done more damage than I think. And if that conflict happened to be about money, yes. that would be a relevant uh, kind of dilemma. Because, you know, if one is avoiding the conflict, which happens to be about Mm -hmm. money, then you can see how an attachment issue related to avoidance Mm -hmm. would overlap with how relationships and money go together. I think it was interesting that you said that there was um, four, there were three, there were four Four quadrants. And only one of them was reasonably healthy. Right. And I would even bet that um, trying to find somebody who we would call healthy and secure is really hard to find. Actually, it's not that hard to find. I mean, people generally would... uh, uh, Bulby's original and and Mary Ainsworth's original studies Mm -hmm. suggested that perhaps 60% of people would be in the secure category. Oh, okay. So a lot more than you think. I'm just kind of thinking of the fact that we're all a little bit weird. Well, that might be That's true whether we <laughs> feel secure or not, right? So, yeah, so it's, it wouldn't be unusual to find that, no. you know, we each have our quirks. Um, we each have our defense mechanisms. Right. Um, we each have a, a worldview that is not always helpful. Yeah, I mean, really we're talking about um, the connection between, you know, reasonably good parenting and security you, know, mm-hmm. you don't have to be a perfect parent you have to be responsive and kind and have good intentions towards your kids if you mess up once in a while because you you know they're crying and you can't get to them right away or you know um you've got a headache and your spouse has to jump in and do it you know it's not it, it's not that's not what we're talking about. Right. We're not talking about small stuff, the everyday stuff. We're talking about, you know, a kid's crying for three hours and nobody's going to attend them to that. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, 
I, people have heard, you know, maybe four or five, seven of our podcasts by now. And a lot of them have been, you know, kind of centered around financial issues. Right. And I think this is the first one that we've done. And I know we've got a few more queued up um, for the future, a few more episodes where we're going to talk about things like um, people who, you know, get to deal with ADHD and, and yeah. how that affects kind of their ability to handle money. Right. I think this is really good because what we're actually saying is, is there are things going on under the surface as you try to deal with some of these financial struggles. Um, and some of these things have to be kind of addressed that are just bigger than money. Yeah. Um, and they're not just about money. I mean, I could see this being something that um, you could struggle with in how you do your parenting. I could see it could That's be right. in how you struggle with other intimacy issues. Right. I think you could see um, this coming into play in how you deal with friends and family members. So, you know, if you're fighting about money and other things... Um, you know, maybe this is uh, some territory worth exploring. For sure. So really quick, because yeah. um, we've got to wrap up pretty quick here. Sure. But at what point in time would you recommend to somebody who, whether you're the spouse or, or the person, you say, you know what, you know, maybe there is some things in my background about how I view attaching to people yeah, um, and how I view the world right. where um, I might benefit from talking to a pro yeah, about I mean, how to make some different choices or to have some different options going forward. So, you know, this is a great question. We're just sort of post-pandemic. Mm -hmm. There's been a massive mental health crisis. Um, and so it's a little harder to find a therapist right now than it has been prior to the pandemic. But if you had asked me that question... So are like all the therapists stacked up and boats outside much of stacked, the... Yeah, they're pretty much stacked up. L.A. Harbor is right, like all right. the other supply yes, chain shortages. that's correct. <laughs> supply chain shortages, that's right. Um, but if you had asked me pre-pandemic, I would say now is the time. I mean, if you're considering the possibility that something's going on from your history that's impacting your relationship, you don't need to be you know, mentally ill to go to therapy. Mm -hmm. That's not what therapy is about. Therapy is about trying to help people understand what's going on inside them, understand their own minds and, them, and the minds of others so that they can make a better life for themselves. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would say go now. Mm -hmm. I mean, why not? Right. Awesome. So, um, yeah, so if you're having arguments that, you know, span about financials. Maybe they span much further than financial issues. Yeah. Um, this is an area where I think people can be curious. Um, I and think, I think there's some really good conversations that you could have yeah. about, Hey, you know, why is it that, you know, you guys relate this way or, you know, or be curious about yourself and ask for your partner's help. Hey, yeah. do you notice that whenever I get around my family, I get pretty anxious or I get pretty angry yes. or I, you know, whatever that is, you know, bring those, take some, have some courage and have some curiosity to bring those discussions forward. And you can go online and search for attachment style online quizzes. Hmm. You know, they're, they're with any other online quiz, you know, there's a varying <laughs> quality, but there are actually some pretty good ones and you can go find them and it'll give you a pretty good sense of like your attachment style and what that looks like in your relationship. So that, that's definitely a good way to start in terms of being curious. All right. Awesome. So if you want to learn any more about us, you can go to uh, relational-media.com um, and learn more about what Jeff and I have been working on um, in our partnership. And we thank you for listening to this episode, and we'll see you all again yeah, soon. See you next time. Mm -hmm.
Hey, thanks for listening. Please leave us a review and follow us so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit relational-media.com.